0: Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher, delighted to be joined this week by Graham Craig, who's Chief Executive of Places for London, which is TfL's wholly owned commercial property company. Graham, good to see you. Interesting that you've got a new name. Tell us about that. What's behind the rebrand that you've basically announced this week for your part of the TfL empire?
1: Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. We became a wholly owned subsidiary of TfL in April last year. So we now take no funding from TfL, but we're responsible for managing the 2 billion of assets, 2 billion of commercial property assets that TfL has put into this separate property company. It's roughly
0: the same size as a FTSE 250 business like Granger.
1: It's a major business in its own right and it's Mm. one that is going to grow over time. Now from my point of view it's fantastic that we're in a position where for the first time we are no longer in competition with transport for funding. We're a wholly commercially funded organisation but all the profit that we make gets ploughed back into London's transport network. So this is something that works for us, and critically also it works for TFL. Now, the name of the company was TTL Properties Limited or TFL. Now that company was set up oh way back in 2014 Mm. to hold our shareholding in Earl's Court. I think by common consent, TTLP was the worst name in the world. We knew (laughs) that it wasn't the right name. We spent A few weeks thinking about what do we call ourselves, the first name we came up with was Places for London because we're ultimately creating places and everything we're doing is for London. We then considered about 200 other names and came back to where we started. And that's why I'm delighted now to be saying that we are and will be in the future Places for London.
0: Hmm. Well, look, whatever you're called, I think, ultimately, you're going to be judged not by the name on the tin, but by what you're delivering for London. In your time in the role, you've established quite a number of joint ventures with some very prominent partners, including Helical, and looking forward to seeing Gerald Kay on BossCast at some point soon, Granger being another one, Barrett's, and of course, you mentioned Dell's Court that's now being driven forward by Jamie Ripblatt and his team at Delancey. So what's been behind these JVs and what are you actually delivering? Because it's taken a couple of goes, hasn't it, to get the framework functioning.
1: We're at a point now where we've got seven joint ventures up and running. We've got two major mixed-use joint ventures, one at Earl's Court with Delancey, as you've said. We've got another one at Edgware with Ballimore, the potential there to build three and a half thousand homes. This old shopping centre. Yes, Yeah. the old Broadwalk shopping centre and the adjoining bus station and bus garage. Mm. And you know, we've also got Smaller individual site joint ventures, but still important. One at Kidbrook with Notting Hill Genesis and one at South Ken with Native Land. But particularly, and you've talked about them, you know, this commercial office joint venture with Helical for Sale joint venture in West London with Barrett London and a built to rent joint venture with Granger. These are seven organisations that know what they're doing. They're credible, they're long-term, we work well with them. The image that I've got is that this Places for London organisation sits in the middle of these seven organisations, all of whom are specialists in what they do. And our job is increasingly, how do we work with those multiple partners on a site-by-site basis to create something that works for London? Because this is an industry that still operates often in silos, but that's not how people live. It's not how they work. It's not how we make the best use of the sites that we've got. So how do we leverage the relationships with these organisations who are now on the inside of the tent working with us to say how can we make the best use of this fantastic estate that we've got across London?
0: But I guess the element of that, Graham Craig, that's going to be quite contentious is that word best use because it means anything to anybody, doesn't it? Often in the public sector, best means a long, protracted procurement process that's all about cost rather than value. And many people in London, given how tormented the housing market has become and how much of a political football it's been for so many years, many people will be saying, well, look, unless you're building totally affordable housing, all of these sites, why don't you just pack up and go home? That will be what some parts of society will be saying. So what is your response to that?
1: My response to that is the whole point of the setup that we've now got is we've gone through the procurement route. We've now got these partners on board with whom we're working. You look to the fact that last year we started over 2,000 homes on site across our portfolio last year. And that's the sort of rate that we need to be hitting year in, year out. We've got a target to start on 20,000 homes over 10 years. We're now operating at that sort of pace, and that's the pace that we're going to continue to hit. Now, the only way that we can achieve that is not by going through procurement on a site-by-site basis, but by saying across a number of different sectors, who are the people who understand what we're trying to achieve and are capable of working with us on a multi-site, multi-year basis in order to make the best use of the opportunity that we've got. Mm. And in terms of the mixture, we are committed to delivering 50% as an average across the portfolio in terms of affordable housing. We can't solve every problem at every site, but ultimately, I guess it comes back to the name, isn't it? If you're Places for London, we are here to solve the problem that London has got. One of the biggest problems that London's got is lack of affordable housing. And that equity challenge is something that we see our role as being seeking to help to solve. And the way in which we do that... 50% affordable housing as an average across the portfolio, some cases 35 in other cases up to 100% affordable housing. But we're still part of TfL and we're here to serve TfL and we're here to serve London. So every chance we get to deliver things like step-free access or changes to the transport network that help things like decarbonisation of the bus route, of course we're always going to want to do those things as well. So essentially, the
0: message I'll put it in my phrasing is that we shouldn't be scared of profit because profit can actually pay for good things to be done.
1: We absolutely shouldn't be scared of profit. We are a commercial. we no, oh, pro-
0: though? Do you think, as societally, we look at profit as bad? Do you think this whole country has become quite anti-capitalist, and particularly when it comes to real estate in different countries, it is viewed in a different way. In this country, we almost deliberately refuse to understand the nature of risk, the role of debt in development, and the nature of what construction entails. And we look at any kind of property development as bad, even though we know that London has a much higher number, proportional number, real number of renters than any other part of the UK. And you've got a company like Granger, brilliantly led by Helen Gordon, who's an absolute living legend, that is doing this. They're pioneering rental housing and, you know, it hasn't really got the support centrally that rental deserves, even though there's a huge rental crisis now from years and years and
1: years of not supporting it. I'm a big fan, obviously, of Helen. I'm a big fan of Granger. We're delighted to be working with them. And now we've got five sites up and running and expect to find more. We will find more over time. In terms of how we're set up, I think in my head, it really is quite clear. We are not a short-term commercial fast buck organization. Mm. People should think of us as being like a great estate, but a great estate that's got assets right across the capital. We do want to deliver social benefits across our estate. But what we want to do is to marry those things because they are not in conflict. It is perfectly possible to be a social enterprise that's trying to do the right thing for London and also a successful commercial organization, particularly if you focus on the long term. And that for me is the big thing here. You know, this is what does London need in the long term and how can we make the use of our estate in a way that Delivers what London needs because if we do the right thing in the long term, as it happens, I am convinced that we'll also make most money in the short term as well. Mm. Well, I think that's a good point, and it's what
0: people like Nigel Wilson, outgoing boss of Legal in General, has been talking about for a long time. And of course, you know, when you and I first met Graham 10 years or so back, and we were starting out on the journey with built to rent with companies like Central Living, who were and still are backed by American Pension Fund Capital in the ultimate long-term investors in a lot of this stuff. I guess the other contentious thing on the canvas is Earl's Court, which has clearly been a bit of a football that's been kicked around in recent years. It looks like are making a good job moving forward with it. But how much of a poison chalice is Earl's Court as a development? Because it got quite sticky towards the end of Capco's time with it.
1: What are you hoping that's going to occur with that now that they weren't able to deliver? The first decision I took in this job way back when, was that we were not going to sell out of Earl's Court. It struck me then, and it strikes me now, that if you're talking about the 26 acres of the original Earl's Court one and two site and the adjoining Lilybridge Depot, which is an operational London underground depot, if you bring that into the site as we are now doing, you're talking about a 40-acre site in West London. It strikes me that, places for London, TFL, the public sector, should be doing the right thing by London and should be engaged. And I've got to say, I've been very impressed at Jamie DeLancey, Rob Heeseman and the Earl's Court team and the thinking they've got. And, you know, you just reflect on the fact that the previous Earl's Court master plan had space for 4,100 car parking spaces. You know, we're now talking about a car-free scheme. We've got to be building what it is that London needs with an eye to the future. And I think us being involved makes it more likely that we will end up with the right long-term scheme for Erlscore. It's a site that we care deeply about. I personally don't see it as being a poison chalice. I think this is the most important development site in London. it's a
0: poison chalice in the sense that any kind of development... Is generally unpopular. And in that part of London, you've got lots of quite wealthy people that would much rather nothing was built anywhere near them. And that's not a TFL, a Delancey, an old Court, or a Places of London issue. It's just a general issue we face, not just in England, but pretty much any, any
1: built up country in the world. It certainly isn't easy to get <laughs> development done in London. It isn't isn't easy to get development done anywhere. Sorry, but I'm resolutely of the view we're going to be doing more development than anyone in London over the course of the next 10, 20 years. Now, you know, that's something that you either... Embrace or run away from. From my point of view, I recognise the challenges that London's got. London and UK PLC needs London to be effective. London needs homes, particularly affordable homes. It needs jobs. It needs growth. It needs infrastructure. We can't solve it by ourselves, but working in partnership with other parts of the public sector and working with private sector partners in a proper long-term relationship at places like Earl's Court is, I think, exactly what is the right long-term answer for this
0: city? And for people that might be worried, people listening to this, either, I mean, just commuters, taxpayers in London, not then have to be people within the real estate or transport arenas, but people thinking that you're using TfL money to build homes and take risks are wrong, because you're actually not. You're using the capital from those third parties and the land holdings that you have, and your abilities, you've said, Graham Craig, to orchestrate and curate what's happening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're taking no money from TfL. The sources of our funding are we have a commercial debt facility in place that is borrowed against the assets that we hold, What we're also doing is recycling within our portfolio. So we've got an investment... It's much like
0: a housing association would recycle what they would refer to as the surplus. Exactly. The profit in normal language.
1: Yes. But also what we're looking to do is we've got sites that aren't actually attached to the transport network that we might have acquired individual units, retail, whatever, at various points in the past. But there's no logical reason as to why we'd hold them now. So we're looking at how we might recycle proceeds from disposals of those assets. What well, are some of the most
0: interesting ones you've found over the years? Some random stuff must fall out of the drawers and people go rummaging.
1: I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. If you're asking about my favourite sites like across the... TFL network. Well, inevitably, actually, the stuff that appeals most to me is the stuff that I'm keen to invest in and the stuff that we will be holding long term. We've got, I mean, literally individual units on high streets across London that there's no reason at all to hold. I'd love to think there was anything there that would be worth any of your time, Andrew, going out to visit, but I'm not sure that I would recommend it. I would say if we're going to do anything, I would take you on a tour of the stuff that we're going to invest in and keep.
0: Hmm. And in terms I mean, you are talking about infrastructure and thinking for the long term, is there a degree to which you have to be prepared to put yourself in the stocks in the short term? Because, again, the challenge with development is it faces into the winds of short term, five year political cycles where councils and you've been a victim of this on a number of occasions with schemes that you put before planners where people will refuse schemes, even though there's clearly a public interest and a public good behind what's being proposed and is there a degree to which doing something pretty radical like for example having a calf reels court project is going to rile a certain minority and you have to be prepared to take that flak and actually make that point that if we're going to support and help mitigate climate change the impact of climate change we've got to take some decisions this might be a bit unpopular in the short term
1: the way that i reconcile this is probably as simple as, can I look myself in the mirror and are we doing the right thing by the city? It can't be about what's short-term. It has to be about what's the right long-term answer. You have to back yourself. I think, critically, one of the lessons that we've learned, and I should say that well over 90% of these schemes that we brought forward have gone through, but where we haven't been successful, I think, to be honest, that's because we've tried to outsource to someone else, I think we've got to stand up and explain ourselves why we think it's the right answer. Mm. I think we probably have underestimated the extent to which we can help to make things happen. We're a supremely well-connected organisation in the shape of TfL. We can explain why we think it's the right answer for that location, for that borough, for this city. We should be the ones who front things up. I think also, critically, we've got to be the organization certainly that seeks to address the operational transport interface we all know what that does, what does that mean in plain English in plain English it is every developer is very conscious that where people most want to live and work is around the transport network but everyone knows the cost and the risk and the timescale implications of building around the transport network so those are issues that we need to solve up front. Again, lessons learned. Sometimes we've brought things to market too soon. Much better for us to do all of that thinking up front, such that when we engage with our commercial partners, we've solved all the operational issues, and then we can think exclusively about how do we make the best use of that site from so our commercial partners. So you're not talking about
0: but- coming to the developer with a preconceived scheme, because they would say we could do that better, but you're talking about mitigating risks around people in and out. Or are you talking about coming to people with an oven ready scheme?
1: I can think about examples like Bola Lane Acton Town that we got planning on for 852 homes that we then brought to market and then entered into a joint venture with Barrett London and that work is now underway. And we crystallised the value of having got planning on that site and I think we secured a better planning consent with the borough than a private developer would have been able to do so it's not the answer on every site Mm. but i think we need to recognize if you're a two billion organization you've got to have the skills you've got to invest in in some cases we will be able to secure a better consent than a private developer would do so
0: no i mean that's fair and i guess ultimately what you do want is you want all that uplift for yourself you don't want to be sharing the planning game with third party do you
1: Uh, yeah um equally again just to be clear there is no one organisation that could take forward by itself all the sites we're talking about. That's why we've already got seven joint ventures. We will enter into others. It's a fantastic opportunity here, but it's one that can only be delivered if we work with partners across the public and private sector.
0: And in terms of the general housing quality, looking at the likes of Barrett's, how are you ensuring that their quality of what they deliver meets your own expectations. Are you having to push them? What are the conversations you're having around the product?
1: I guess, moving away from Barrett in particular, what I would say is across all the joint ventures, we're not a silent partner. We're in this privileged position where we sit in the middle of all these different companies, all of whom have got their own strengths. We're clear about what we stand for, so that, for example, when it comes to sustainability, we aspire to be one of the leading organisations in the world from a sustainability point of view. Again, we want to do the right thing by the industry. We want to do the right thing by London. We set standards. For what we expect now whether it's barrett london or granger or anyone else people know if they want to work with us not just now but in the future they have to meet the standards that we've got and that for me is what's exciting about this role is it's not simply what we do it's our ability to influence through our partners through our tenants through our customer base through our network what is it that we can do to move this industry forward because let's be honest This industry is currently not meeting all the challenges that London's got. And it isn't meeting all the challenges that the industry's facing. So what can we do in order to make sure that through every interaction we've got, we're setting high standards on quality, sustainability, construction skills, diversity? These are challenges the industry's faced for far too long and hasn't done enough on.
0: Give me one issue and tell me what the industry could do more on it with. Let
1: me give you one example, which is you and I are two white males and the industry is populated by far too many people, particularly at a senior level that look like us. And you're thinking about my business, OK, if we're doing more development than anyone in London, how on earth could we credibly claim to be doing a good job unless the team that I've got at all levels reflects the diversity of London, the most diverse city in the world. You know, that's something that has to change. We've been talking as an industry... that's
0: fair, but I will interrupt you on that point because I'm a working-class kid from East London. I'm partially sighted, so, you know, you could argue I took a couple of boxes. Being Jewish doesn't make me a minority in the property industry, admittedly. Um, (laughs) Scottish is probably more of a minority than being Jewish in the property industry. But my point, point, the serious point, is I think diversity has got to go a lot more beyond... What's skin deep? And actually, I'd argue, Graham Craig, that class is a far greater definition of people's life opportunities than gender or race. And I'm happy for people to write in and message me in disgrace at that statement, but I firmly believe it's true. I take your point in representing all of London. I think it's an important value and it's important for you to push. And I'll happily let you finish the point. But I think an interjection on there is critical because for me, in the support I have for a lot of Businesses that I've worked with and advised, and charity, what I do, I think diversity takes many, many forms. Many of those are non visible, both in terms of ability, class, and background. And actually, if we want to move the conversation forward, I think it's got to go simply beyond how many boys or girls do you have in a room, how many. People of a different skin color do you have? And it's going to look at some of the harder to measure things. And this is, again, you know, in terms of the conversation that you want to have today on skills, I think that's something that plays quite nicely to that piece. But do finish the point. I've interrupted you with a big, big monologue, and I'm keen that you finish the point you're going to make, Graham Craig.
1: There is nothing you've said that I would disagree with, of course. And I think when it comes to, you know, beyond race, gender, sexuality, neurodiversity, we can end up with a broad spectrum of things. Yeah, absolutely. But I think we need to accept that us as an industry are not diverse. As as the real estate industry here, just to be clear. Yeah. yeah. Let me give you an example, actually, because I also completely agree with you on class. One of the things that we are very keen to do and have had some success on is actually involving, for example, school kids in what we're doing from a construction point of view, there are far too many people in London who feel that development just happens to their community. They don't feel involved in it. They don't feel engaged in it. They don't even understand what the real estate industry is. We've now, as it happens, engaged with, spoken to over 2,000 school kids with many, many thousands more to come, where we're actually telling people what it is that we're doing. We're telling people about the vast range of jobs that is available in this industry. We've got people who've now joined Places for London, who we first engaged as a shadow board member, as a local school kid, adjacent to our development sites. Now, that doesn't, in and of itself, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming that that's the answer, but it's the sort of thing that we as an organisation are seeking to do to make sure that people recognise we are trying to do the right thing by London. And that means involving local people so that what we deliver is better than otherwise would be the case, but also taking the opportunity to say, this is an industry that needs to change, and it's going to be at its best if you've got full diversity, full engagement, including at a senior level, from people right across the capital and beyond. And
0: a big part of that, I think, is about the education system and whether you think about... You know, women we in the workplace, my wife had our first baby 15, 16 months ago. She probably noticed 15 months ago. And, you know, we're in a very privileged position where we can afford a nanny. But if we weren't, as a lot of people are not, then we'd be a bit screwed. And I think, again, some of these things are down to, and I will defend the property industry at this point, some of these things are down to policies within companies, be that around maternity leave, paternity leave, whatever. Fundamentally, these are, Societal things, policy things at a national level where we decide, right, we're not going to support working mothers with the appropriate number of tax credits. And that's why so many people get removed from the workforce and don't continue their careers. And this is why senior roles are often not representative of the great skill base that exists. I don't expect you to get into political debate on this podcast. You're not going to be able to do that, Graham Craig, unfortunately. But do you accept that there are things outside your control obviously govern some of this stuff.
1: Of course, there are things beyond our individual controls. But equally, can I say that we are yet doing everything that we can? No, there is more that we could do. Is there there more the industry could do? Absolutely, that's the case. We've been talking about graduates and apprentices as the route for solving diversity in this industry for 20 years. Mm. We but the now-
0: problem is that the construction industry and the development industry are two separate industries. One makes money, the other doesn't make very much money, and the construction industry, particularly the latter of those two, has been doing the same bloody thing for 100 years. It hasn't changed, has it, really?
1: There's a whole separate issue there that we can get into <laughs> a whole shortly. Lot of Actually, what I will say is that we have Trained up and got into long-term employment. Trained up, excuse the pun. (laughs) Yes. Um, Over 1,400 people. So there's 1,400 people now in long-term employment who have gone through one of our construction skills academies. We set those up because we knew that we needed resource to undertake our schemes. But having set that up, we've obviously got, again, we're a well-connected organisation. We've got the network. So we are talking to charities and others. We're bringing people into this industry. We're getting them trained up. And specifically, we are training them up on skills that we know as our partner organizations or other people need. Such as what?
0: So I could do with somebody to help finish my bar from home. If you know any tilers, Graham Craig, please put them in touch. We will with have with
1: trained them. people on tiling. We've trained people <laughs> like as host, Yeah, I would love how many operate. tiles are used
0: across the, the Crossrail network. It must be quite a lot. <laughs>
1: Uh, A fair amount of concrete as well. But yeah, I mean, we can joke about it, but this is, you know, we are an organisation as part of TfL that is spending or investing literally billions of pounds. And the question is, how can we maximise the benefit for London as a consequence of doing that? And that is not thinking about quarter by quarter is not thinking about project by project it's about saying let's just squeeze out the maximum benefit for this city and this industry by thinking about what's the right answer in the long term
0: what would you like to see then across the wider industry in terms of a call to arms to help with some of these issues what would you like other developers to be doing that they're not doing right now
1: let me begin by saying that i think there's more that the public sector can do together. Yeah. So we've recently signed a collaboration agreement with Network Rail. We've agreed that we are going to pool our land interests across London. We're not going to think about the red line of what each of us owns. We're going to, particularly at big sites like Victoria or Stratford, but literally dozens of other sites, we're thinking, well, actually, what can we do just by combining our land interests and do the best that we can for that location.
0: Because actually, there's often, it's not just a red line, there's a halo effect, isn't there? Because if you've got a central land holding among, well, essentially one partner, as you're describing, that potentially brings into play a number of parallel sites.
1: Exactly. So potentially, you could unlock around 100,000 homes, right? Certainly tens of thousands of homes if you're thinking about bringing in adjoining borough land, NHS land, you know, there's huge potential here. So for me, this is about how can the public sector, in a world in which London needs infrastructure, London needs homes, it needs jobs it needs growth it needs investment it certainly needs infrastructure not just transport infrastructure but infrastructure to deal with aging population and all those other things well the question for me is how can we make sure that we help to convene those public sector landowners coming together and then it's about working with the best commercial developers and others in order to help to unlock that brave person that tries to bring together the NHS, the MOD and everybody else but I think
0: you're right and it's something we've talked about we were talking about this with the boss of Assura, Jonathan Murphy, a couple of months back and that's the exact point in terms of how particularly for the NHS we could be using land and other assets more effectively but is there a silo mentality that just needs to be crushed away to make that happen because at the minute the people in the NHS aren't thinking about building homes, they're thinking about keeping hospitals running over Christmas aren't
1: they? It's definitely the case that all of us have you know what's immediately in front of us and what's in our inbox. I think that we've been on a journey within TFL. We've recognized that if you own five and a half thousand acres of land, you're a property company, whether you've accepted that or not. We're now in a position where we're delivering income for TFL, we're delivering asset value growth for TFL. We are delivering places where people will be living and working to increase footfall and therefore revenue from a transport point of view. We are delivering transport improvements on the transport network. There is no one now in TfL or elsewhere who, I hope, would think that us doing anything other than making the best use of TfL's land is anything other than a sensible thing. Those exact same principles apply to other landowners. It's something that you shouldn't go into without being conscious of the amount of effort that's involved. But by goodness, it's worth doing because the benefits multiply again and again and again. That's what we're saying. And the more you look, the more you find. And you start to then combine land ownership together. And also, I mean, to be fair, there's also work for the real estate industry as well. People do not live according to the silos that we as an industry have, we might split things into commercial office or industrial or for sale or for rent. We might separate in our minds what happens on the ground floor versus above it. People who are no, just... I've, I've been
0: trying to explain for many years to people that normal human beings don't live in built rent, they just live in a rented flat they probably found on Gumtree. but anyway. Exactly.
1: But this is it. We as an industry need to do more to create livable working places that don't operate within the silos that we invent that actually deliver what people in this city need well let's follow that point through you mentioned stratford i've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet
0: about stratford i grew up in ilford my first job was in the pizza hut in romford age 15 both ilford and romford had quite burgeoning shopping centers romford had quite a big popular market and those are two of many retail centers that have effectively been killed off by the Westfield in Stratford. Now, I've got nothing against new shopping centres, but as a consumer, when you go and see a concert at the football stadium there, it's appalling. The user experience coming out of Stratford Station, walking around through the cramped corridors of the shopping centre, across rows, down this sort of ghastly concrete wasteland around the stadium. I appreciate you didn't build the stadium, Graham Craig, but what are you going to do to sort out the station?
1: I mean, it's a great example, because that was the station that at the time it was built, I think, was the... 20th busiest station is now the fifth busiest station. It's one which incremental enhancements have been made over time in the shape of subways or bridges, but it just isn't intuitive there are lots of times... Well, it looks like-, like something
0: that's been made up as it's gone along, doesn't it?
1: Well, and that's exactly what it has been. And <laughs> and so here, are, you know, what really sits for me at the heart of particularly our work with Network Rail and other adjoining parties is let's not try and individually solve our individual land ownerships. Let's combine them all together and say, Ashley, how do you optimise the development opportunity, ignoring red lines of individual ownerships and how critically can you then take the proceeds of that development to fund a better station, one that gives you the ability to see where it is you're going and just head towards it rather than try and follow signs that might take you down individual passageways or tunnels or cross bridges or whatever else it is that isn't intuitive isn't friendly doesn't feel welcoming in the way that frankly a station at the heart of this new increasingly emerging part of london just doesn't have the infrastructure that it needs at its core no it's incredibly complicated so what does that mean then that means you're going to
0: develop stuff on land around Stratford and use the money from that to fix the station. Exactly. How long is that going to take?
1: Imagine that at Stratford, and imagine that at literally dozens of other sites across London. And in terms of the speed at which it happens, that's going to be dependent on, or, you know, part of the job that we've got myself and Robin Dobson and Network Rail is to take forward the broadest portfolio that we can and where there is traction where's the ability to get it done that's where we'll put the investment and resource into if there are obstacles at any individual site okay we'll we'll try and work those through. But the key thing we've got to do is wherever there is traction, wherever there's the ability to get stuff done, that's where we'll prioritise. And Victoria was the other station that you mentioned.
0: Landsex has obviously been driving a lot of the regen round there over the years. That's where when I was at the BPF back in the day, it's where we were on Warwick Row, Yeah, it's a ghastly old building at the end of its life. What are your plans there? What else have you got to do at Victoria?
1: There's a site in which we own the island site at the front of the station. We own the Victoria coach station. Network Rail, of course, has got the majority of the ownership in terms of the main station itself. I don't think that anyone that sits on Buckingham Palace Road and sees people feeling their suitcases looking lost trying to head towards Victoria Coach Station would say that that's a part of London that feels like it works. So for me... It's not as bad as Waterloo, but I take your point. Yeah. Well, actually, Waterloo is a whole other example. There are a few key sites in London, many of which are around transport networks that just do not work as well as they could do. Waterloo, for Watersworth, worth, I completely agree with you, particularly the walk from Waterloo down to the South Bank just doesn't work as well as it should do. So the question for there, the question for Victoria, question for Stratford, question for elsewhere, is how can we come up with something that works? in the round and you know when it does and you know when it doesn't and you can never solve these things wholly in the public sector the private sector can't solve it by themselves it's how do you come up with something that initially ignores land ownerships and then makes damn sure that those organizations come together no one gets everything that they want but everyone ultimately recognizes that you need to put the effort the investment the time in to then make sure that you end up with a better outcome than is currently the case.
0: It sounds a very daunting task sorting out Victoria and Waterloo, but I mean someone's definitely got to do it because you know if you're on that commuter line into Waterloo every day and every night, that often isn't a particularly happy experience, particularly in winter. One of the other things that I wanted to sort of talk a little bit more about is sustainability because that's obviously the defining issue of our generation, Graham Craig. But as a public body, you do have to go harder and further than you would do if you were simply a anonymous private developer of homes so what are you doing and how are you enforcing standards and i suppose in terms of the organization itself what are some of the values that you're ascribing to
1: so on development in particular we have a sustainable development framework that sets out over 600 odd pages what our aspirations are from a development point of view 600 pages yes Crikey. And Why is it so long? It's so long because we've got just under 100 KPIs that we measure for every scheme. So we have science-based targets. We believe that by looking at all elements of people, profit and planet, assessing against those criteria every single scheme, what is leading in the industry look like, what's policy, let's make darn sure that we measured before, during, and after the development. We use that as the basis for making sure that we ring out every available opportunity to deliver what it is that this city and this industry needs. We've got a brilliant internal team that we don't shout about in part because we don't want other people to steal the team that we've got, but we've got a (laughs) superb team who are leading on the industry on this. I am very confident that what we are doing will stand the test of time. I probably take slight exception to your notion that as a public sector body, we could should be doing more. For what it's worth, I am firmly... So, I, so you're held to higher standards, I think. That's my point. Um,
0: People see you as being supported wrongly or rightly by the taxpayer and thus you're held to higher standards.
1: What I was going to say is, just for what it's worth, I am resolutely of the view that if we do the right thing, including from an environmental point of view, the proceeds of that will follow. I honestly do not look at it as a cost. I look at it as an investment that will pay back manyfold. And certainly that's something that the team feels proud of. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that again, as a public body, but not just our ability to attract, retain, develop the people that we want as the future of the organisation. Those people care deeply and rightly about the environmental impact of our industry on this city and this planet. And I think us being clear all the way through that this is what we stand for, will ultimately help us be successful, not least because it will mean that we're able to have the people in our firm who give a damn about this and who will drive the organisation forward. Mm. That all makes a lot of sense. I mean, And on that point,
0: one of the newer JVs you're looking to establish is going to be around EV charging, isn't
1: it? It is. So we've got individual plots of land that aren't necessarily suitable for residential development. TfL might have acquired land as part of things like Road widening schemes in the past. So, actually putting in an electric vehicle charging hub with rapid charging, whether those are for domestic vehicles, taxi, private hire logistics vehicles, of course, that must make sense. Did
0: you can do something about the scooters that people are littering pavements with. Could you put them there because they're a right.
1: <laughs> uh, that's a whole separate issue. Let me concentrate on. Uh, you're not responsible on... for the scooters. No, I'm not respons- <laughs> responsible for the scooters. <laughs> Equally, I think it's part of larger development sites. I am keen that we've got a joint venture with a partner, someone, again, who's on the inside of the tent, who we and they are then working together to say, well, it's got to be in the interest of the city, it's got to be in the interest of the planet, that some of those barriers that currently exist on the take-up of electric vehicle charging, including things like range, anxiety well if we've got these sites if we've got the development opportunities if we're thinking about doing the right thing again comes back to the name for london well if we believe and we do that electric vehicle charging is part of that let's put our land where our mouth is let's enter into a joint venture and work with someone yes it's a future income stream but like everything else that we're doing there are wider benefits that accrue from it mm,
0: yeah i mean that makes perfect sense and there's a lot of investors looking at EV charging as an emerging piece within the infrastructure pie and I guess the challenge will be though Graham Craig is many people will say look driving around London is almost impossible now with so much of the network under the netting of low traffic neighborhoods and all the other changes that are occurring in places like Old Street and Highbury Corner that are making it very very tough for people what should the relationship be more broadly and this is perhaps a It's a question for a whole series of podcasts, but what should the relationship be, I know you're a transport geek, between the car and London?
1: I've spent the last 10 years thinking about real estate rather than transport. I'm happy, probably over a drink, to consider the broader relationship as we look, not just at London, but other cities around the world and the nature of the changing relationship between the car and cities. I guess what I would say is that, as an obvious starting point, that the only way in which London is going to grow is if there is the investment, you know I'm going to say this, in the public transport network. We need to work harder... To reduce down emissions from cars, we need to reduce obviously the carbon impacts of cars. Time and again, going back a hundred years to Metroland, that critical relationship between investment in public infrastructure and public and Metroland. Transport- just
0: for people that aren't familiar, was the name given to the land holdings around what was originally
1: the Metropolitan Line, where people began to settle in what, 150 years ago. About 100 years ago, but yeah, just over. But I think, you know, you can look at Jubilee Line Extension, Northern Line Extension, Elizabeth Line. I'm going to say this, of course I am. But as part of TFL, we believe that the continued growth of this city requires long-term investment in public transport network that runs alongside development. That's something that as a city... We seem to continue to need to learn. I spend quite a bit of time actually talking to my equivalents in other cities around the world. Every city is wrestling with exactly the same challenges. Mm. Every city knows it needs to do more in order to unlock housing, particularly affordable housing. That, for me, is what my focus is on. And I think, the for me, the relationship between the city, the transport network, and housing and jobs and growth, particularly given you know this new normal that we're all facing up to, requires much more, frankly, creativity than maybe some of the debates that might have been had ten or twenty years ago on the subject of cars.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair, and it was exactly the conversation we had with Tom Reardon from Leeds City Council a couple of months back, talking about that the necessity for public transit and such investment, how it unlocks new housing. What would you like your legacy to be when you look back on this later on? What would you like to have achieved over the next few years?
1: I think like most people in real estate, you're initially drawn to legacy in terms of things on the street, things that you've helped to create from a personal point of view. Mm. Somewhere near the top of the list would be let me pick out two favourites. South Kensington. It chills me to the bone every time I'm in South Kensington. I'm going to museums and institutions and particularly if you're there at half term, but not just. Every time I'm there, I'm helping someone up those stairs with a buggy. And this notion that particularly in that location, we don't have step-free access. And when we've got a solution in place in the form of development that can fund the investment in the transport infrastructure to enable the district and circle line to be step free. I am not giving up until we put it in place. The other one is at the bottom end of the northern line in Morden. So I live in Surrey. The closest tube station to me is in Morden. In the case of Morden, you come out the tube station and walk literally into the bus station I would love us to work with London Borough of Merton, who I've got to say are completely up for development and us just thinking afresh about actually well, it what does... Us... I've for
0: many, many years. I've not done much, but...
1: But this is, again, you know, from you're asking me what it is that I want as a legacy. Yeah. I want us to work on Edgware. I want us to work on Ellsworth Court, I want us to work on Morden. I care. We all care. I know that you do about these villages and towns and cities across London. I want to see them change for the better in a way in which TfL, Network Rail, local authorities are working together in order to provide the space for people to live and work. We're in an enormously privileged position. We're giving people a roof over their heads. We're giving people space to raise a family. You're talking about your child will... You and I both know there are far too many people in the city who are not in a position to be able to have a safe place to grow up and raise a family. We have to try and sort that out. So, so do get- we then need
0: to overhaul planning policies so that these things don't take so many years to go through so many appeals and that we can have sensible conversations that say, right you've got a train station there, let's double the density around it, you've got public transport underneath it, it's sustainable or as sustainable a form of transport as you're going to get, but increasingly and frustratingly, we're still at a point where people, developers, this isn't a TFL point, it's just a general rant, but the point being that the penny hasn't dropped, Graham Craig, has it, about the fact that we should be looking to push density around transport hubs and not be in a position as we still seem to be, not just in London, but Cambridge, Oxford, anywhere, where people having to fight with knives in the street to, to demand common sense around building densely around transport hubs?
1: Two-part answer to the question. One is that, of course, it's obvious. It's the most sustainable place to build. If you're going to build anywhere, if you're going to build car-free development, if you're going to build where people want to live, where they want to work, you build it around the transport network. That's obvious. The other statement of the obvious is we have to find a way to take people with us changes to policy are fine we know from experience that being policy compliant is not the single solution to getting things through you have to work hard harder than ever to persuade local people that development is well considered and meets their needs because there is no doubt that what we are doing is introducing inconvenience for people during the period of development and again if we're doing more development than anyone in london we're going to have to work harder than anyone in london including getting off our backsides and talking to local communities across the capital to explain to them why ultimately this development is worthwhile. So that's something that we absolutely take on board. I've not forgotten that I didn't answer the second part of your question on legacy, which brings us back to an earlier point, which is, as well as everything that's happening on the street, what I want to do is to create a team within Places for London, within TfL, that truly represents this city, a team of people who are bright, enthusiastic, energy-focused on doing the right thing. That, for me, is just so critical that we can create a diverse, energetic, inclusive team that represents this city who want to take forward the estate that we've got. That, for me, would be the legacy above all that I want to see happen. Mm.
0: Well, I'm sure there'll be many people listening to this and within organizations like the Urban Land Institute that I'm very privileged to be on the exec of that would want to get involved with that. And I think people would support that. And I think it should cut across gender, race, class, disabilities, visible, non-visible. And I think very much to your point on supporting step-free access and making the transport network in its widest sense more accessible. I think that supports it because the more people that can use it, the easy it will be for black cabbies to drive around on which is the main point of contention for them but let's move away from all that i'm interested your scottish accent doesn't seem to have softened too much for your years in london graham but you grew up in edinburgh right
1: grew up in edinburgh spent first 25 years of my life it's there just before the Londoners moved in uh, yeah i should say that when i go back to edinburgh people tell me my accent has changed oh, so i exactly uh, do but yes uh, went to school in edinburgh went to university in edinburgh did medicine it's To everyone's benefit, I think that I chose not to be a doctor. I then spent 10 years of my life in Bristol, where I met my wife.
0: Amazing. And then you moved to London to work for Capita.
1: I was originally working with Capita, was in Bristol. I actually moved to London and joined TfL at that stage, originally to run the congestion charging scheme. So yeah,
0: another popular thing that's obviously come to drive and really define policy change and obviously the debate around ULEs charging is obviously probably going to continue for many months to come but it's been really good to have you on Graham and thanks for being such a passionate animated guest I think we love it on this podcast when we get people on that can just talk from such an informed perspective and I'd stress that these are totally unscripted nothing's ever off the table with these podcasts and we're really super grateful particularly when we get a broad range of guests from different places and if you'd like to come on and be part of the conversation do get in touch. But look, thank you very much, Graham Craig. Once again, Places for London. It's the newly rebranded entity, wholly owned commercial property business owned by TFL Transport for London. If you'd like to subscribe to Propcast, you can go to Apple, Amazon, Spotify, SoundCloud, search Propcast wherever you get your podcasts from and do share this with any of your friends, family, and send us some suggestions or feedback on any of the things that we've said, any of the rants that you've heard that you vehemently violently disagree with or agree please get in touch and tell us but look thank you once again for listening everyone i've been andrew teacher managing director for real estate and esg at Montford, and we'll see you again very very soon